0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Buddha was an amazing expert on how the mind works. And one of the <clears throat> ways that he looked at how we're put together is seeing that our minds have different qualities, different um, factors that comprise the human experience, some of them wholesome factors some of them unwholesome factors, some neither wholesome nor unwholesome, that are arising in every moment, and some that are neither wholesome nor unwholesome, that arise from time to time. And uh, in Buddhist psychology, there are 52 factors, mental factors, that are common to our experience. We won't go into all 52 tonight, but we'll go into a few of them, particular factors that he said lead to awakening. Sometimes when I think of the 52 factors, I think of that's the the deck that we're dealt. You know, not everybody has a full deck, perhaps, <laughs> but. Uh, Pretty much, it's a common experience. <clears throat> and it's also a comfort to to know that whatever space that you're caught in is not unique to you. It's just part of the human experience. So if there is confusion, oh, that's a factor. If there's greed, if there's aversion, is it just different qualities that arise from time to time. But the particular list that I wanted to um, explore with you tonight are the seven factors of awakening, seven factors of enlightenment. This can give you a sense of what you're doing here, because this practice, as we're going through it day after day, can be thought of as the cultivation of these factors that, when mature and ripe, lead to awakening. And we're doing it right here. Isn't that comforting to know? This is what we're doing. You might not have realized you were cultivating the seven factors of enlightenment that that's what's going on. There's a couple of ways to look at, uh, at this list. You can think of them as one developing another. Um, but the way that uh, it's, it's generally found is um, that if you see them as balancing, then you can see uh, what is needed, what is needed to bring about a balance. Because a, a lot of the practice is just getting a sense of coming into balance, and out of that sense of balance, freedom arises. And so, three of the factors are energizing qualities, three are more stilling qualities, and mindfulness is the factor that not only balances them, but cultivates all the other six. So that's one way to realize that in every moment that we're here, that we're cultivating mindfulness, we're also cultivating uh, all the other factors of enlightenment. It's a very important list. In fact, in the Satipatthana Sutta, which um, Sally will be going through, uh, with you. She started her last talk. The, the last foundation of mindfulness, which includes a number of uh, different lists, the last foundation is a reflection on these seven factors of enlightenment. That's one piece of the, the fourth foundation. The Buddha said uh, to look from time to time and see what factors are present and what factors are not present. So as we go through this, um, I invite you to both get a sense of how your practice is developing, what are the stronger factors and what qualities can be developed. And also, in any one moment as you go through the day these days, you can see what you need, what's called for, what's strong and what's a bit uh, weaker and what you can invite to develop. So the first factor of enlightenment is mindfulness. The Buddha said there's no factor that's as powerful for the development of the wholesome and for the diminishing and eradicating of the unwholesome. It's a purifying quality. So in the moment that you're mindful, not only are you connected with what's happening, but it is having the purifying force of diminishing unwholesome qualities in the mind and developing wholesome ones. How does that happen? Just as an experiment. Sometimes we do this uh, on retreats. Maybe some of you have done this before. Just put your arm out in front of you, and move it slowly back and forth through space, really slowly. You might close your eyes and put all your attention on feeling the movement, the vibration, whatever else you notice. Right now, is there any wanting? Is there any aversion? Is there any story about tomorrow or yesterday? Just feel the movement. Okay, you can stop. In that simple experience, you're not lost in grasping at pleasant, you're not pushing away the unpleasant, you're not creating a story in your mind, and it's a moment of freedom from all of those difficulties, whether they're called hindrances or afflictive emotions. In that moment, there's a real balance there's a wholeness that doesn't need anything extra to make it a better moment and doesn't need to have anything removed in order to make it a better moment. There's simply a fullness of mind right here, right now. That is a moment of freedom because there's not, there's not greed there's not aversion, and there's not confusion. And those are the three sources of suffering, the opposites of which, non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, are the sources of happiness. So, it deconditions those habits of mind. It's a beautiful reflection when I think, and it's a very powerful one for me in my own practice, that every moment that I'm mindful I'm deconditioning habits of confusion, and I'm cultivating habits of wisdom, even though it doesn't seem like much, just moving your hand, or taking a step, or feeling a breath. And The interesting thing is, you can have that same quality. No matter what the subject is, if it's feeling a breath, if it's feeling a sensation, if it's hearing a sound, if it's feeling an emotion, if it's noticing the thinking mind, it doesn't matter even if it's a pleasant or an unpleasant moment, that you can still bring that quality of connection, and here you are again. Even when, for instance, you're lost in wanting, it's not too late because in the moment that you notice there's wanting, oh and here's wanting in the mind. You're not lost in the story and once more you see clearly and you've undercut the momentum of that force. As, As Sally shared the other, the other day, and we'll go through it <coughs> with you in the uh, next few talks, there's many, many ways to be mindful. You can do it like Ajahn Dhamma Dharo, and move your move your hand up and down, or feeling anapana or noticing the body sweeping, many, many different ways. You can be mindful of emotions, mindful of thoughts, it doesn't matter. For the purposes of mindfulness practice, it's not so much the subject of your awareness as the direct connection with it that's not trying to manipulate or control or getting lost in some kind of judgment about how things should be. Mindfulness (coughs) Mindfulness <coughs> comes from the intention to be mindful. It doesn't happen all by itself, because it's, kind of, it's going against the stream. You see how easy it is to get swept away, even when you're in a room full of people, and maybe in the, the instructions you're told, bring your attention to the breath, notice what's happening... <laughs> mind goes off. So it takes some effort to do this. It takes some intention to do this. But the way that it works is that as you, and I'm sure you've seen this by now, as you are more familiar with the present moment, as you start to land in the present moment, mindfulness begets itself. I think I mentioned the the other night, as you pay attention, then you get to see more. And when you see more, things become more interesting. And when you become more interested, you want to see more. And so you keep on developing that that quality. Um, as I go through these, these different uh, factors, I want to share with you some supportive factors, other ways to develop each of them from the commentaries. So, ways of developing mindfulness, besides the bare microscopic attention, developing clear comprehension, like in that first uh, foundation in mindfulness, Referring to mindfulness in a broader sense, walking, stretching, bending, turning around, all the activities that make up our life. So, there's different lenses, and sometimes it will be a very refined way to focus in on experience, and other times it will be much broader. And so, it's not to think that there's any one way, it's to see how you can best Meet the moment, how you can best receive the moment. Mm -hmm. There is a support of avoiding unmindful people. That's in the commentaries. Mm. (coughs) And another support, being around mindful people. Just associating with others who value mindfulness seems to bring that out. And then the the fourth is inclining the mind towards mindfulness. It's like inviting that quality to arise. And with, with each of these, when we incline towards a particular state, it has to be done without any kind of grasping, without any kind of agenda, but just inviting that the mind can go there. And sometimes it can be helpful to start a sitting. May I be as present as I can, just planting that intention. May mindfulness be strong in the sitting. Then whatever happens beyond that, not your problem, not your responsibility. You just incline towards that and it starts to be a little bit more available in your consciousness. Very different than saying. I'll never be mindful. What you do when you have that idea is you disincline towards mindfulness. So it's it's important to see what stories you tell yourself about your capacities or what's going to happen and just invite it to move towards more mindfulness. Okay. This goes on to... The first of the energizing factors, <coughs> which is investigation. Mindfulness, by the way, in, uh, in Pali is sati, S A T I. And investigation is uh, dhamma vichaya. Okay. Investigation, what does that mean? It doesn't mean analyzing, it doesn't mean figuring out. It doesn't mean finding out why something is happening. The word why, I would just like to warn you, (coughs) is not such a helpful word in meditation. Why am I experiencing this? Have you ever had that thought come to you? Has it ever led any place that's conducive to more peace? Maybe every now and then you get rocked by an insight that says, oh, that's why. But generally it's not by figuring it out. Somebody had asked about insights. Well, how do insights arise? Well, usually they arise when you're not trying to pull them out. If you figure it out, you say, aha, I know and then it turns out to be that way, all you end up doing is kind of patting yourself on the back and say, pretty clever, I knew all the time, I knew it. (laughs) Which is one more reification of self. I knew it. But when you have an insight that just appears to you, ah, you know that experience, oh, look at that like it never occurred to you before? You know that experience, right? That aha experience. In order to have an aha experience, it means you've let go of your knowing. There's a a beautiful line in the Third Zed Patriarch. It says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. That's usually how it works, isn't it? So this is not about figuring out this quality of investigation. It's simply letting yourself explore to see what's true, to see the actuality of your experience. And the actuality of your experience brings you back to a place of connection and out of your stories. I want to share this this, uh, uh, letter that I uh, some of you might have heard, I love this, this letter that somebody wrote about realizing that that analysis didn't get anywhere. This person was it was on her first retreat and she was having a tough time, and then she finally got what letting go of the figuring out mind was. So for those who have that tendency, take, it, take this in. The one thing that's indelibly in my brain is finally remembering you don't have to figure it out. That would never ever register in my brain as an option before. And then yesterday I was walking and struggling in my brain, thinking round and round, and this voice came into my head that said, you don't have to figure it out. And I stopped and closed my eyes and asked myself, what is true right now in this moment? And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and various body sensations coming and going. And the rest will balance itself out in its own time, I thought to myself. And I resumed my walking. What a revelation. We do like to complicate things, don't we? It's a tremendous rest and ease to let go of the figuring out mind, and just come into the bare experience of what's happening. And the investigation factor is letting yourself be curious, if you will, even letting yourself be fascinated, oh, what is going on here? Not why, but just what's the actual experience here? I've sometimes said this before in my own practice, one way that I evoke investigation is imagining that I'm an alien and I've just inhabited this human form, reporting back to the mothership (laughs) what these guys go through. Oh, this is breathing. Oh, this is lifting. This is putting. And letting yourself do it as if you've never done it before, like it's the first time. Oh, this is freaking out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. It really is possible. You know, if you have that willingness to be here for anything and just see it for what it is without taking it personally, then in the moment that you're there with it, it doesn't have to be the enemy, it doesn't have to be a problem, it's simply the next thing to understand about the human experience. The Buddha has this line, in this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed I love that line. So this is your laboratory that you've been issued, this mind, this body, for you to check out what the human experience is like. And then you get to see 52 mental factors and a bunch of physical factors and stuff like that, Five, six, five sense doors besides the mind, and you just check it out. Oh, that's what this is as was said the other, the other night, Ajahn Sumedho, oh, it's like this. Now you can say, oh, it's like this. This is not investigation. <laughs> or you can say, oh, it's like this. All it is is letting that natural curiosity lead you through, lead you to discover. It's an exploration. Sometimes you might have to trick yourself into thinking something is interesting, but that's okay. It really is. Oh, if this knee pain were interesting, (laughs) what would it be like? Oh, this is what knee pain is like for these folks. And it's not like you've got to hang in there for the next hour. Just for a little while, the, 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 the powerful thing about investigation is in the moment that you're willing to become curious about something, you can't at the same time be hoping it'll go away. So you're not adding on that layer of aversion that's, Manipulating, bargaining, trying to control, and really filtering, imposing a reality on your whole experience. Well, if I'm mindful, maybe then it'll go away. They said everything would pass, okay, I'll anger, 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 it's still here, anger. That won't do it, but if you look, oh, let's feel this, oh, this is angry Buddha. Okay, what does it feel like? It's tight here, is the jaw clenched, It's vibrating? Wow, that's really intense. Oh, look at that. In that interest, you don't add on that layer of aversion, which in itself starts to open up and allow things to be just the way they are. So it, it really means letting go of any kind of an agenda and just seeing with A sense of wonder. Oh, what is here? A curiosity. Some supportive conditions for investigation. Ways to develop investigation. Mm. A balanced mind helps. Avoiding fools. (laughs) making friends with the wise, Mm. inquiring, just asking questions and also having any kind of Dharma questions um, clarified, so you're not lost in doubt, reflecting on truth, that is, really wanting to understand what's true and inclining the mind towards investigation. Oh, And again, it's not so remote. What would it be like to be curious about this? You can invite that quality. The next factor is that of uh, effort and, and energy Virya in Pali. You've noticed probably this practice takes some effort. It doesn't happen on its own. The antecedent of effort usually is some kind of either faith or trust that it's worth the effort. In the factors of the uh, five faculties, five spiritual faculties, faith or trust, leads to the effort to be mindful and the effort to be mindful leads to mindfulness. (coughs) So the effort really is simply a willingness to be here as best you can and when you see you've gone off to very patiently, persistently, kindly bring your attention back and begin again mentioned this earlier, that is the whole of what's being called for you, called uh, on you to do. Just come back when you see you've gone and the way you bring yourself back is the key to the whole process. If you bring it back with judgment and frustration and discouragement, that's what you're cultivating every encounter with the wandering mind. If you bring it back with kindness, and patience, and the sincere intention to be here. Every encounter with that wandering mind is developing patience, kindness, and presence. So the effort really needs to be not coming from will, but coming from the heart. This is um, a letter also from another yogi. Um, It is a huge relief to know that I'm not in charge of my moments of awareness, that these are indeed just beautiful gifts. That's how he puts it. I think I've been laboring under the assumption that by sheer effort of will I could manufacture awareness And that the only reason it wasn't happening was because of laziness, weak brain power, lack of dedication, etc., etc. So this shift of emphasis towards faith and sincerity of heart, letting the process evolve at its own speed, in its own direction, has made me incredibly happy. So happy that it's really hard to come back to the breath. (laughs) He says that in a facetious parenthesis. Uh, That is such a great relief that you're not in charge of how your practice goes. It just does its own thing, and mysteriously it knows just what to do if you make the sincere effort to be here. The effort isn't a strain, it's not tight, it's not forced, it's a balanced effort. Because effort, like everything else, goes through its fluctuations, at times it will look differently than at other times. And one of the, the keys is getting a sense of how you can be most balanced meeting the moment. If you are getting very tight, if you're getting contracted, if the walls are starting to close in, this is a very good clue, that maybe things are getting a little bit too tight for you, and what you need is to just lighten up and be a bit more spacious. You can feel it in your body as well as the energy in the mind. Just check in. If you're starting to get so spacious that it's a bit spacey, and things don't matter so much, and, well, I'll just practice compassion for this week, and <laughs> and if I'm mindful, I'm mindful, good luck. If you start finding yourself getting fuzzy and spacious and, and lazy in it, then, What you do is you dissipate the energy and the momentum of of your practice. And so, to really be honest with yourself and see, oh, what's needed is a renewed commitment, a renewed inspiration that says, yes, what am I doing here? I really want to make the most of this time. Not a forced effort, but simply what will need, what will be helpful to get balance. On one retreat, I was, I was sitting at Barry on the, uh, the fall retreat, and I was really into my practice, getting into it. It was just really delicious for a while. And then it just started to get a bit tight. And then a bit tighter. And then a bit tighter. But I was just going to stick with my practice and just really go the way that had been working, slowly, slowly, and I was getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And that went on for close to a week before I finally realized there's something off here. And I decided, not only wasn't I was I tight, but I wasn't very mindful, and my mind got very contracted, and uh, I just couldn't wasn't grounded. It wasn't easy, It wasn't not that it's easy. It wasn't it wasn't connected. So I decided to um, take a, an unmindful walk. I just decided to kind of play hooky for a while. I thought I would be. It was was cheating at the time, Uh, and then I realized as I got through this lesson that it wasn't cheating. It was the most skillful thing I could do. I got on my overcoat and my boots, and I hadn't been out for for quite a while, and I decided to walk like a normal person. (laughs) Radical, it was. And there was, I said, look, I'm, I'm not mindful anyway, so I might as well just take an unmindful walk and enjoy myself. Left, right, left, right, hearing, sniffling, left, right, thinking, left, right, left, right, feeling it. <laughs> I couldn't stop being mindful. <laughs> as soon as I stopped trying, there it was. It was one of the most mindful walks I've ever had in my life. And it really showed me That efforting, that tightening, didn't do anything for my practice other than just wind me up in a knot. And then, as I got more balance, that interest and investigation would draw me in to see, not because I'm trying to be a good yogi, but just because things are more and more interesting and every moment of mindfulness counts. So I'm not suggesting that every time you're starting to feel a little bit, uncomfortable that you you know, head for the hills, but to really get a sense of what's needed for you to bring about a sense of balance, and let the effort come from your own sincerity of heart, not from your will imposed on reality. These are the factors that cultivate, that help develop effort and energy. <coughs> One, reflecting on, <laughs> reflecting on states of misery. <laughs> that is, this is a skillful means of seeing how, if you don't put in the effort, that um, you're not really using this time, and <clears throat> it can. There's no guarantee where you're heading, right? And so there's all kinds of realms of existence, whether you believe it or not. Okay, but you know that when you're not mindful, it's really painful to get lost in your stories. So mindfulness itself becomes uh, an appealing thing to put the energy into. Reflecting on the benefits of energy okay, as you become more uh, mindful you become more clear and wise. Remembering the Noble Ones, remembering that many people have walked this path before and have freed their minds. Appreciation for support that you've been given. That is, the people who have supported you in coming here on the retreat who are saying, yeah, go there and do it. You're doing it for all of us, or you're doing it as, and I'm really, I wish you the, the richest possible experience. May you get the most out of your retreat. And also the support that you're given here with Spirit Rock and the, and the, the cooks and the managers and, uh, and teachers, and that everything is conducive for you to practice. And to take in the support and realize this is not a mistake. Can arouse some inspiration and uh, and energy. Remembering the Buddha and the 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 Buddha's example, his his vow to liberate all beings, that his compassion uh, led him to to share what you're practicing now, mm-hmm. the possibility of complete awakening. Remembering. The greatness of lineage that many, many people have, uh, have walked this path. Whether or not they've been enlightened, there's a value and a power to the practice that affects everyone who does it. Remembering your like-minded friends, the people you're practicing with. Avoiding lazy people and being around the company of energetic people, or people who make a sincere effort, and then finally, inclining the mind towards energy, hmm. may energy arise, or may my effort be as sincere as possible, and again, inviting that as, uh, as a quality that get, can get evoked, then letting go of whatever happens. Okay, the next factor is that of rapture, or joy. Joy is a factor of enlightenment. It's not cheating, it's not something that, um, that is indulgence, that if the mind is bright, it's easier to pay attention, and it's also naturally in harmony with the way things are. You know, uh, in the Hindu um, teachings, there's this expression, sat-chit-ananda, being, consciousness, bliss. That when one truly sees, there is a joy that can naturally arise. Now you might say, oh, well, it hasn't arisen for me. Uh, Let's get it. Okay. It's not something that you can grasp after, but you can incline the mind towards joy. What joy, there's many different kinds of joy in this practice. There is the joy that comes from a concentrated mind, rapture, piti it's called. There's a lightness that can come. There's an energy that can come and fill, fill the body, and there's also just a A happiness that comes when you're really connected with the moment from time to time when joy is present or simply a state of happiness and openness let your awareness tune into that so you become more and more familiar with it so it's not just a fluke a well lucky moment there the more you pay attention to it the more it becomes available to you so it's a a fine subject of mindfulness as it presents itself. <coughs> this is not about cultivating suffering, and lest you do, e- lest you think that, even though we talk a lot, a lot about suffering, I want to remind you it's about suffering and the end of suffering. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is joy, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in what is good and what is true. They delight us, in them we find joy. This is a factor of enlightenment. And when it's present, Allow yourself to experience it fully. When it's not, don't grasp after it, but simply invite it, incline the mind. And if you've had an experience, a sweet, delicious experience, be careful not to get attached to it. Oh, it was there the last time and now it's not. No, because the real profound opening of the heart is simply in letting things be how it is how they are. That's where the spaciousness allows for more beauty and goodness and connection to arise and wisdom to arise. Factors or develop ways to develop joy besides mindfulness. Remembering the virtues of the Buddha. Rejoicing in the Dharma. We've all been touched by the Dharma here. Letting yourself feel how much you love the Dharma. Rejoicing in the virtues of the Sangha. Considering your own virtue. This is a source of really great joy. You might reflect on some things that you've done that are really kind, or that have really been wise choices, and rejoice in your own virtue. Remembering your own generosity is also a source of joy. Considering the virtues of, or the benevolence of life, the virtues of the gods, the devas and brahmas. Just feeling the support of of energies beyond yourself. Reflecting on the possibility of real peace. Avoiding coarse people. Seeking wise people. Reflecting on the discourses, on the teachings and inclining the mind towards joy. So these are the three, I have to move on here. These are the three energizing factors, investigation, effort, rapture, or joy. And they're balanced with three stilling factors, calm, concentration, and equanimity. We'll go through these quickly. They say, rapture or joy is piti in uh, Sanskrit, in uh, Pali. Calm is pasadi, okay? And calm is a kind of settled stillness. These are three different kinds of stillness, in the way I see them. Uh, calm is just this sense of settledness. There's a peacefulness. There's a non-agitated quality that is just at ease. There's a softness, and acceptance. It's the absence of restlessness and the absence of remorse, because that also stirs up the mind. That's in the classical sense, the absence of remorse. Mm. Calming the breath calms the body. So, if you're feeling very agitated, you might try that, taking some deeper breaths. Calming the breath calms the body, calming the body calms the mind. Becoming familiar with calm when it's here, just like with joy. Sometimes it seems so foreign that you think, you know, what is this? And sometimes it seems like, when there's not a whole lot happening, oh, this must be boring. Not a lot going on. We're not used to it. It's an interesting thing. Sometimes we do confuse calm with boredom, because we're not used to that kind of profound quiet. But when you think about it, boredom is just the, the flip side of peace. And when you get really quiet, if you're looking for something, then that quiet won't be enough. And it can sometimes be a little bit um, anxiety-producing because it's not familiar. But more and more, if you're becoming familiar with that sense of peace and calm, and you might even name it, ah, this is calm, calm, and let yourself rest in it, see what it's like not to have to do anything, but just to be, uh, it's really wonderful. Sometimes if the energy is too intense, then you need to discharge some of it so that you can feel coming back to yourself on an energetic level that you're not overwhelmed with the restlessness. So You can take a walk in nature, get some space, like I said before, or do something physical. The yoga is an excellent um, release and relief from that energy. Doing something that's very grounding. If you feel a lot of energy and it feels overwhelming, just feel yourself connected with the earth and let all the energy that you don't need flow right down into the earth. The earth can handle it all. Mostly, letting yourself become familiar with that sense of stillness. Sometimes, if guilt is stirring up the, uh, the agitation, then a reflection, there's a, 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 an antidote reflection, thinking of something good you've done, like that, uh, like we said just a moment ago, thinking of your own virtue. And so you think, oh, yeah, sometimes I do something that's unskillful. Sometimes I do something that's really skillful. And let yourself have that as a balance to it. Guilt plays very little positive role in this process. Because all you do is keep beating yourself up when you're on that tape loop. And you say, yeah, I can't believe I did that. What a Whatever you are. You know, wherever you want to fill it. Yeah, and then the perfect way to really beat yourself up is to keep on thinking about it, or go ahead and do something else that'll confirm just what a jerk you are, that is n- there's no way out of that. And so as you reflect on something wise that you've done, or kind that you've done, or you see, okay, when I did that, that was not so skillful. Now I'm going to learn and do something a different way. There can be a sense of um, developing from those mistakes. Okay, here are the supportive qualities of calm. Seven uh, different ways to develop calm tranquility: eating well, proper food, okay. having. Good environment, good climate, not agitated. Um, changing your posture to more comfortable, so you don't have to be in there toughing it out. Avoiding, avoiding louts, <laughs> bad-tempered, rough, or cruel people. <laughs> they disturb your calm. Choosing calm and kind friends. And inclining the mind towards calm. Next, concentration, samadhi. Concentration is a kind of stillness that's a focused stillness, not settled, but you're collecting and focusing in a one-pointed way, an unwavering stillness. And it can be, as we said before, on one particular fixed subject, like the breath, or lifting, moving, placing, or it can be on changing experiences, changing kanika samadhi, moment-to-moment samadhi, where there you are noticing the breath, the sound, the sensation, and an emotion, and the breath, and moment after moment, there is a, a build-up, a momentum of concentration. It helps on retreat to simplify your experience. Simplifying helps to create a sense of collecting and composing. So if you're doing too many things, or if you're, you know, brushing your teeth and combing your hair at the same time, you you know how that feels. And that's how A lot of us, that's the mode that a lot of us are in in our daily life. Here's a chance, finally, where we don't have to hurry, but actually the real challenge is doing one thing at a time. We like to complicate. If you can do one thing at a time, then you can be fully there with whatever you're doing. And the key to concentration, particularly, is continuity. So, if you're doing one thing at a time, and now this, and now this, and now this, then the concentration builds, because those moments of mindfulness build on each other, and kick into just a natural development of concentration. It's not possible to maintain concentration, no matter how focused you are, and this is sometimes a trap that people set up for themselves. They think, wow, I really got concentrated. (laughs) Cool. Another three weeks, who knows where I'm going to end up. (laughs) Um, And it's true, who knows where you're going to end up. (laughs) You have no idea. Concentration, it's more like a slope. It goes in the direction of more and more connection and clarity, but there's moments of concentration, followed by non-concentration, followed by concentration, non-concentration. And if you just look at the slope, the forward edge of your practice, like it was said, you know, reporting on what your clearest sitting or your clearest walking is, it's not cheating. I I went to, uh, studied with Upandita and he would say, Okay, tell me about your clearest sitting. And I would go in and I'd give a good report. There's bound to be something good that happens in 24 hours. And I'd give this report, and then I'd add on. But you know, it wasn't that way for a lot of the rest of the day. And I did that about two or three days in this one period of practice. And he said, you don't have to add on that extra part. Don't tell me about that. And I realized, oh, he knew. I wasn't going to be able to maintain that concentration. Didn't have to make a disclaimer. It's that same way you can just let the practice take you where it needs to if you keep on coming back to the moment and as best you can be with just what's happening now. These are the supports of concentration. Cleanliness. And it makes sense. Unclutteredness allows the mind to settle down. A balanced mind, having a clear mental image if you're doing loving-kindness, uplifting the discouraged mind, calming the over-enthusiastic mind, uh, cheering a mind that is withered by pain, continuous balanced awareness. Avoiding the distracted, choosing friends who are focused, and inclining the mind. When you happen to be concentrated, let that be your subject as well. Oh, this is concentration, just to acknowledge it. Oh, this is concentration. Not, oh my God, I hope it doesn't pass, but just, oh, and here's a concentrated mind. And then, finally, the last, equanimity, which in uh, Pali is upekka, like one of the buildings. Concentration is samadhi, uh, equanimity, upekka. And equanimity is a kind of stillness that is a spacious stillness, different from the focused stillness of concentration and the settled stillness of calm, is a spaciousness that just allows things to be how they are. A non-reactiveness knowing that everything is coming and going, coming and going. So there's no one place that you need to try to land or stay, maintain. The equanimity is just letting things be okay the way they are. And one Support of equanimity is uh, restraint in the pleasant, when there's pleasant, not indulging, and opening and softening when things are unpleasant, so that you're not adding on a layer of fear to that. Being open to anything, meaning however your meditation going is apt is going, is absolutely fine. It's just okay. It's just like this. And the more you practice that attitude where you're not taking responsibility but putting in a a sincere intention, there's a sense of equanimity. Equanimity is cultivated in every moment of mindfulness because it's not grasping at the pleasant or moving away from the unpleasant. There's a whole lot more I would like to say on all of these, but uh, I'm going to end in time So, here are the supports for equanimity. A balanced emotion towards all living things, realizing that the world has joys and sorrows, and that everybody is on their own journey. A balanced emotion towards inanimate things. Oh, I love that sweater. Oh, I hate this dessert, whatever it is. Avoiding people who go crazy. <laughs> Avoiding the company of people who tend to um, uh, get very um, extreme in their, in their uh, behaviors choosing friends who stay cool, and inclining the mind towards balance, towards equanimity. And you can do that when you're feeling really out of balance. You can simply invite, may equanimity arise, or may I have as much balance as is possible. And in that moment, it's like you are opening to that possible energy instead of thinking, oh, I'll never be balanced, I'm always going to be out there, just coming back and inviting it right here, right now. When you're doing the practice, get a sense of what you need. If you're finding yourself with a lot of energy, you might invite more of the the stilling factors, calm, concentration, equanimity. If you're getting too still and not clear and wakeful, invite the energizing factors of investigation effort and joy. The mindfulness is cultivating all of them and is also bringing about a balance between all of them as well. So, if you have trouble remembering lists or don't know what to do, it's very simple. Just be mindful and that'll probably get you back to where you need to be. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. This talk was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 10, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. O- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.